Last fall, just as the NBA season was about to start, I talked to John Calipari. The Thunder was about to open its season with two of his former Kentucky players on the roster. And because I talked to him before about Shea Gildas-Alexander, I was mostly hoping to ask him about Case and Wallace. But we weren't three minutes into that conversation before, with no prompt from me, Calipari brought up the trade that had sent Gildas-Alexander from the Clippers to OKC in 2019. Doc Rivers did not want to trade him, Calipari told me. He knew how good he was. And that wasn't surprising, given what Gildas Alexander has become, but it was notable. And Doc's stance was also at the heart of a story ESPN's Tim McMahon wrote this month about the trade that sent Paul George to the Clippers and brought back the guy who now is OKC's franchise cornerstone. McMahon took a look back at the trade and what's happened since. The team the Thunder has built around SGA, Chet Holmgren, and Jalen Williams, who notably arrived via one in the historic hall of picks the Clippers sent to OKC. Tim's been watching this develop for years, and from his home in Dallas, he's a routine visitor to Thunder Games both in Oklahoma City and in his backyard against the Mavericks. He's also one of the best writers and podcasters covering the NBA, and so he seemed like a great fit for a check-in on all things Thunder. He joined me to talk about the Gordon Hayward trade, Josh Giddey's fit now and down the road, and his story about the trade that changed the franchise. Today, OKC's past, present, and future with ESPN's Tim McMahon. I'm Brett Dawson, and this is Heard Thunder. Before we get started, thanks to the sponsors who make our show possible. MidFirst Bank, the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, Fire Lake Casino, and your local Ford dealers. Drive into your best in Oklahoma Ford dealers today for the best deals on Ford's full lineup of trucks and SUVs. Ford is the best in Oklahoma. All right, so very excited to welcome Tim McMahon in. Tim, this is this is a big time get for me, and I thought how we might start is I was up really late last night. The Thunder played a game at 9 a.m. local. I wrote until like 3 a.m. I didn't get a lot of sleep, and I know on your podcast it makes you very comfortable to just talk about people's sleep schedules and how hard they work and how late. Howdy, partner. The, uh, the windy sleep update is definitely a highlight for regular listeners of the Hoop Collective, and I'm sure your people appreciate the Dawson sleep update. Good old Everybody DSU to, to get it started. Hopefully you had some <laughs> coffee this morning and, and we're ready to roll. I am fully caffeinated. I'm good to go. I hung a picture in my office five minutes ago. Ooh, it might classic. fall. That would make for live podcast fun. Um, all good times. So, uh, Tim, I'm going to try to wake up a little bit, and, and we got a lot of stuff to talk about. I want to talk about the story you wrote about the Thunder uh, recently. It's the NBA, so I don't remember what day it was, but it was mm-hmm. fairly recent. Um, and we'll get into that. But I want to talk first about, um, you know, you, I remember probably two summers ago on an episode of the Hoop Collective, I think going into the previous season, you sort of said like, hey, I kind of like what they have. You know, I kind of like what they're building, like what they're doing. There was all this talk even then about when were they going to cash in all the stuff and, you know, when might they go get another superstar? And your approach at that time was kind of like, let's just see what this is. Um, what did you expect this to be at this point and, and where are they relative to what you were thinking? Well, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I expected number 12 overall pick Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara <laughs> to emerge as a legitimate co-star. But I, I did think like, hey, you had to see exactly how good Shea Gildas Alexander could be. And we're seeing that he can be MVP level good. I don't know if he'll win MVP or not, but he's a legitimate candidate. And then you knew they were going to have a, that high pick, obviously that turned into Chet Holmgren. I mean, they, they so what they have now is a legit big three. Like Shea's going to be on a super max on his next deal. I, you know, still has a little bit of time left on this max. You've got two more years of rookie deal left uh, after this year with Chet Holmgren and with Jalen Williams. Then those guys are going to be 
max players, but that is a trio that you can build a long-term contender around. They've a, they're, they're a contender right now, a contender with next to no playoff experience. So we'll see how that goes this year. But if you're betting on any team over the next five years, I think the only other team you can you can even bring up, I guess you could talk yourself into Denver because Joker's prime, but like the Celtics and, and Thunder, you can project them to be at the top of the league for this next window to come. And then obviously they've got tons of picks. And I think we're seeing with Presti, the picks prop it's probably not gonna be an all-in type of deal. And they probably don't need an all-in type of deal because they don't necessarily need another star. And financially, I think it would get it will become very difficult to add another star to that mix, much less you got one ball, et cetera, et cetera. But those picks are going to be used for swings, you know, upside swings. And, we, and we've seen it's, a, it's becoming about swings at quality over quantity with some of the deals that he's made. And then just about managing the payroll that is a couple of years away from getting pretty expensive, which happens when you have a legitimate contender. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the trades they made recently with Denver, look at what they did with Denver, where Denver Denver needed picks now. They need to identify players who can help them on low, on value contracts, on rookie mm-hmm. contracts. And what the Thunder has done is kind of acquire some picks down the road when it will need those things. It, can, it, it will need players in those spots. Now, it can't draft all those players and put all those players on the roster. But I think to your point, you know, about swings, it's also about – now it's not about could we pile all this in and get Carl Towns or whoever the guy was three years ago everybody talked about getting. Now it's like, okay, through this all this maneuvering, we've got the 13th pick in this draft, but we think the guy is at nine. We think that right. guy who can really help us is at nine, so we'll just throw too much at somebody. We can overpay um, to move up two spots. Or if the thing is, you know what, uh, we need a wing who's a little bigger and it's not a star player, it's a more traditional 3 and D, 6, 8 guy. Well, maybe somebody else can't throw two first-rounders at you, but they can do that now. They can go in and get that missing piece if they figure out what that is. Right, and then you've also seen them, you know, the deal they made to help facilitate James Harden going to the Clippers, where they basically said, hey, we'll give up the worst of our picks in 2026, which probably be their own, for swap rights in 2027. That's basically saying we want potential lottery swings and they still have that in 2026 um and then they're going to get uh what they hope it'll be a a post uh Kawhi PG Harden swing in 2027 you saw what they did with the Mavericks the Mavericks are desperate to upgrade now they're in a win now got to win can't have another uh playoff whiff type of season with Luka uh (laughs) you know playing at an MVP level and they needed that. They needed a pick to be able to send Washington. And you call the old bank of Sam. And Presti says, yo, sure, we'll give you what's going to be a, a, a mid-20s pick probably in this year's draft to send to the Wizards. We just want swap rights in 2028. And the the play there is, you know what? Maybe Luca's not still in Dallas. And if Luca's not still in Dallas, that is an absolute steal. I mean, that is highway robbery like Sam Presti will not be allowed to cross the Red River after committing a <laughs> felony if that ends up uh being the case but again it's they didn't need the quantity now they're still going to have a, a, one or two depending on how things play out in the lottery uh lottery picks this year so they didn't need those picks in the 20s let's kick it down the road and have potential upside swings and 
you know, you can certainly argue, and I think we'll we'll have a clearer picture after the playoffs of this team might be one significant, not necessarily star, but significant piece away. At some point, they might need to get a power forward size power forward, you know, which in today's in today's NBA is six eight, six nine. And and you know, obviously they want a guy who can shoot it. They want a guy who can make plays. And you start kind of putting together what's a perfect piece and you're like, hold on, that's Paul George. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> but you know, maybe a, a three and D guy with a little bit of playmaking ability, whatever. Now perhaps they can grow their own. They obviously like Dushman Jing a lot. You know, that you talk about packaging picks to go get a guy they like. He's a developmental project. Maybe he develops into that kind of guy with size, with playmaking ability. Obviously, the, the shooting needs to come along. Um, but there might be a time where they use some of those picks to go get a, a finishing piece. And kind of it's the, the player's not a perfect comparison, but kind of the, the example I use a lot is they go get their version of Aaron Gordon. Right. Who's, is he's a complimentary star, which means the offense isn't running through him. He's not going to put up 25 points a game, but he just fits that role with the Nuggets so well. And that's the piece that kind of vaulted the Nuggets into contending. Uh, it just took a little while because of injuries for them to uh, to be able to get over the hump. Yeah, that's an interesting case study because they, you know, they tried Jeremy Grant and it wasn't quite the right piece. And then they, you know, they end up with with Gordon instead. And I think. With the Thunder, what's interesting, you mentioned the big three with these three guys, and I think it's fair now to say that's what they are because yes. J-Dub looks like he's going to be a real dude, uh, and I don't think there was much question he about Chad if he was healthy. He, no, yeah, J-Dub, dude, the guy's averaging yeah. about he's, – he's in a ridiculously efficient near 20-point-per-game scorer who's a stud defensively. He's a dude yeah. right now. And one of, the be- one of the best fourth-quarter players in the league. I mean, he's just – he's been awesome. Um, these guys are going to grow together. They're really complimentary. I think that's the, the cool thing about what they've built is they don't have much redundancy. Shea and Jada play similarly, but there's room for both of those guys to do what they do. Um, and, and then you sort of figure out what fits around it. And I think that the interesting thing about them is the size thing. They obviously go out and get Gordon Hayward. And one of the reasons they got Gordon Hayward is he's not a big guy. They don't, you don't know if he could even contribute that much. He right. looks, he's so rusty right now. He hasn't played. They keep saying he hasn't played since Christmas. I'd like to clarify the Hornets didn't play on Christmas. It was the day after. That's not <laughs> maybe that's they not had a, Did they have an inter squad scrimmage? Yeah, I hope yeah. not. Steve Clifford's not, not happening anytime, well. not happening anytime soon for the, the Charlotte Blue over there. Um but I, I think he, he's at least a, a guy with some physical size and he, he does all the stuff they need somebody to do. He can pass it, he can shoot it a little bit. He's a good screener. He's fine defensively. He's not a great defender, but he doesn't gum up their offense. And this is the whole thing with them is like, how do they find the piece that gives them? I do think they need a little more just positional size. It doesn't, they don't need a big giant lumbering center. They hate, they love when the other team plays those guys. You know, when, when, when there's, when Jonas Valanciunas is on the floor and he's pushing Chet Holmgren around. They're thinking great because they can pull him away from the basket. I was going to say somebody he's guard else. Chet, and he can't. Right, exactly. Those guys can't guard Chet. We're going to talk about that in a minute as it relates to the way teams play Josh Giddy. Um, 
But like, I think the 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 tricky thing for them is I do don't I don't think this is a championship team right now, and I don't think like you're not trying to, the the game is not about winning rebounding, it's about winning games, and they win a ton of games. But when they get into a little bit slower game, are they just going to need a little more size? And I don't know like who the player is that fits that description, but I think eventually they'll have to get a bigger guy who does pass it, does shoot it, does set screens, and doesn't gum up the middle of the floor. Yeah, and look. Josh Giddy's the guy who doesn't look like he's going to be a long-term fit. I'm not sure if he's even going to be a playoff fit. Um, and it's it's not like you need his playmaking in the starting lineup because J-Dub has emerged as a really, really good playmaker. SGA is going to have the ball in his hands majority of the time. J-Dub is a big-time secondary playmaker. And then the fact that Chet has playmaking skills – as a seven-foot shooter, you know, really kind of opens things uh, up there. And, you know, it's it's not like they need some six-foot-ten banger like it's 1998. Um, but I do think they're going to, at some point, need to just upgrade. And, like, I consider power forward in today's NBA to be a wing position. Yeah. Um, but to get a bigger, versatile uh, wing at some point. And, like I said, the good news is – there's a lot of different paths that they can take to get one, whether that is uh, kind of a, a quick fix trade target. And, and I don't know exactly who that is. Um, you know, there's a reason why Sam Presti and, and his staff get paid good money to figure those things out or potentially develop in their own. And, you know, again, Usman Jing is like, that's the idea of what he might be able to become. I'm not sure he's anywhere close to that right now. But, you know, again, they might end up with the 10th and 11th pick in, in this year's draft or the 8th and 11th, whatever the case may be. Maybe you take another couple swings uh, on those types of players. Um, and the Hayward thing is interesting because, you know, when they first made that deal, the first thing I thought was, hmm, that's a potential replacement for Giddy if if it's not working during the playoffs with him in the lineup, if teams are just uh, – clogging up the middle, daring him to shoot threes, and, and he's clanking away. Um, the other thing that Hayward is, and, and look, maybe he doesn't work out. Maybe, maybe he doesn't ever establish any kind of a rhythm. He's flexibility going into the summer. Right. You can bring him back. You can bring him back at a significantly reduced salary. Um, you can also you know, wave farewell, and you shedded a significant salary now, and you'd have major cap space. and. I don't know that it's about getting a free agent, but I think Sam Presti has a pretty clear track record of being able to use cap space to benefit the long-term outlook of his team. And maybe it's maybe it's the best of both worlds situation where there's a guy who a team wants to get off his salary. He's still a, a decent player, but they're trying to avoid the luxury tax or you know whatever the case may be. Create cap space, you know, it could be any number of things. And you're able to add a pick and a player who, while overpriced, it's not like he's going to bump the the thunder into tax territory over the next couple of years. So could be a situation like that. Um, really geeking out. I think it's going to be interesting to see what they do with Isaiah Joe this summer. Yeah. To me, you know, Preston rarely calls me for advice, but next time he does, <laughs> I'm be like, dude, you got to try to get Isaiah Joe, like rip up the last year of that, that deal, the non-guaranteed year. Get him locked into a, a, a three or four year deal. 
with the, uh, a descending salary. And uh, because he's clearly a guy who fits extremely well yeah. in Oklahoma City, and I would imagine they would want to keep him uh, for the next three or four years. Yeah, just a dude who really understands how to play off guys like he has to play off here. Um, it's an interesting thing. I talked to him earlier this year, and he said like when he was a star in high school and kind of a star in college, he was like, I never really thought of myself that way. I never thought of myself as like a great player. And I think that's made that adjustment a little bit easier. He's such a great fit. I, I want He's a great segue into talking a little bit more about Giddy um, because you were at the game in Dallas where if you drew a line down the center of the floor, you know, three-point line to baseline, the side Josh Giddy was on was uh, completely open, yep. <laughs> essentially, uh, in the second half, and especially that third quarter. And I've said this before, a lot of guys get guarded in different ways. A lot of people play off shooters. When they do it on Giddy, it can be pretty loud. It's really noticeable. Um, Houston, who they played the, the last couple of games, is really the first team to do that with Shingoon. They did it late November, early December, just played Shingoon on and played way off. Um, and in Dallas, he took, I think, three out of four possessions, probably. He took a three from the corner, missed them all. Um, where do you, when you look at them and you look at Giddy, what, what do you, what do you think? You said, you know, it looks like maybe a piece that isn't a long term fit. What do you think about what they're doing with him? Yeah, and look, I also covered the game where the uh, the Wolves won in Oklahoma City, yep. and they did the same thing with Gobert, which is just, you know, if Gobert doesn't have to respect a, a corner three-point shooter, and he can just kind of, you know, shuffle in and out of the lane, uh, just avoiding defense of three seconds and clogging everything up the rim, you're going to have problems. And that was a game where Giddy hit uh, two or three threes in the first half, and the Wolves were basically like, okay, keep doing that all game. Yeah, <laughs> We dare you. Uh, and then I was also at the game against Boston, um, where the Celtics had a similar strategy with Chris Tapps Porzingis. And in that game, Josh Giddy did make the Celtics pay. But I think that the point is, like, you can go ahead and expect that's how teams are going to guard him. They're, they're going to, uh, consider him to be like, we, we dare you to beat us with your jump shot. Um, and they're going to try to take the ball out of SGA's hands. They're going to try to take the ball out of Jalen Williams' hands. Um, you know, they're going to want to put a wing on Holmgren because, you know, Holmgren, as great as he is, and as like the biggest surprise to me has been just how good of an offensive player he is right now, right away. But he, he's not posting anybody up, you know, so you can, you can put a wing on him. And again, it's not that Josh Giddy's a bad player, but he is a flawed player who needs to have the ball in his hands to maximize his talent. And you're not putting the ball in his hands when you have one of the most efficient 30-point scorers that we've seen in a long time running the show. And then you've got one of the most efficient 19-point game per game scorers uh, in the league as his sidekick. It, it, it would make no sense to put the ball in Josh Giddy's hands. And then, you know, a lot of times when you see guys who come playoff time or, you know, even as you're seeing now in the regular season, you see guys that are schemed to, we dare you to shoot. Typically, those are your Tony Allens, right? Those are your elite defenders. Where does he rank in your starting five as far as defensive impact? A distant fifth. Yeah. Yeah. A distant fifth. So I don't know, man. Um, typically when Dagonal makes some kind of adjustment with that starting lineup, it is pulling giddy, whether that's coming out of halftime or just, you know, he's, you'll look up at the end of a game and no, giddy only played 18 or 
you know, 20 minutes or, or whatever the case may be. Um, look, maybe Chip England works his magic. Certainly he has with Lou Dort. Maybe Giddy becomes a good three-point shooter. If he doesn't, I just don't see how it's a long-term fit. Um, and, you know, I, I, his trade value, if they decide to explore it this summer, would be interesting to me. I'm, I'm not sure it's that high, especially going into the last year, that rookie deal where, you know, if you're trading for him, it's to pay him. It's interesting. Somebody asked me last week, could they bench him and not tank his trade value? And actually, I'm not sure. It might go the other way if, if he was coming off the bench because I think he'd get more opportunities to do the things he's better at. And so I think I could see a scenario if it works with Hayward, if he's good. Uh, not, I don't know if they'll – like they're, they're 41 and 17. It's hard to change the starting lineup. Right. It's hard to make a strong case for it. But – to see Hayward in those finishing lineups, I think it's pretty reasonable to expect. And then maybe you just change some of that. It's it's become a weird thing because honestly, to me, when I see them out there in non-Shay units, I still you'd rather have J Dub running the offense than you would Josh Giddy at this point. Yeah. And that's just because he can do so many different things. I will say, I think some of how bad he's been, because it's so noticeable, has gotten a little overblown. It's not that like teams are saying Josh Giddy's terrible, so we're gonna guard the Thunder this way. They're saying Chet Holmgren's awesome. We yeah. can't guard Chet with these guys, so we you know we we can't guard Chet with Alperen Sengun. We can't. We don't really want to guard Chet. You don't want to guard Chet out on the floor with Rudy Gobert, as good a defender as he is. That's not what you. That's not what he wants to be doing. No, because then you're taking away Gobert's exactly. strength, which is one of the most dominant rim protectors in the history of the league. Right. So you can't put you can't put guys like that out there, and then some of the other bigger guys just can't deal with him. Yusuf Nurkic just can't. You know, if he gets pulled away. He's got no prayer. And so if your team's saying, we can't guard him this way. And as you said, like the other night they played the Wizards, he posted up Tyus Jones and scored. Chet did on a switch, and it was notable. It was like, yeah. oh, wow, he, he doesn't do that. Like he just never does it. He posts up less than half a time per game. So it, it, that's what you're going to do. You're going to put smaller guys on him. If he starts to burn those switches as he's getting a little bit better at it, then maybe you adjust, but you're not going to adjust by saying we're going to play up on Josh Giddy. It's just not what you're going to do. And look, if Giddy's off the floor, they're going to do that to Lou Dort. He's been a better shooter than Josh, but like that's how you're going to play. Like you're going to put a center on somebody who you're not as worried about. But with Dort, it's much more dangerous because he's sure. developed from a non-shooter to a guy who, you know, right now as we speak, is shooting 40% from three-point range at you know, almost five attempts per game, as opposed to Giddy, less than three attempts per game, 32.7%. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's clearly Giddy is the, the least of an opponent's concerns on the offensive end and the guy that they would most want to attack on the defensive end. And, and again, that's not an insult. You don't want to attack Lou Dort. He's a top, what you know, whatever three, four, five wing defender in the league. You don't want to attack Jalen Williams. Like he's one of the best young wing defenders in the league. You know, Shea gets the luxury of uh taking one of the, the lesser defensive assignments because of those guys, but he's leading the league in steals. Chet is likely a future defensive player of the year who obviously a lot of that's because of his rim protection, but also because he's a seven footer who can move his feet and stay in front of guys. So obviously Giddy's the guy you're going to want to put a bullseye on. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think like, you know, Shay said earlier this year, I was talking to him about just the way Giddy's played and like, 
Shea, speaking from experience, said he's doing the hardest thing there is to do in basketball. He's had the ball in his hands, mm -hmm. and now he doesn't. Like, he's got to learn to adjust. And so, like, if you look now, he sets more screens than he's ever set before. They're trying to do some stuff. They're trying to, they've tried getting him into some triple handoff stuff, you know, using him like a big guy, essentially. And I think yeah. that can work. And I, I don't know if it can work in the playoffs. We're going to see. You know, I think this is such, still such a fact-finding year for them. But I do think the question is long-term is, you know, maybe there's some value in him as in terms of getting him to a team where he could do more of the stuff he's good at doing. You put him with the ball in his hands and a bunch of shooters around him, I think he can run an offense. I just don't yeah. think he can run this one. And, and you know, the other thing, the other issue with Giddy is he's a poor finisher. Yeah. You know, I mean, by NBA standards, you you look up his shot chart on NBA.com and, it, and it's red in the restricted area. Yeah, that's so, been a real problem this year. That to me is the biggest problem this year offensively in a lot of ways in terms of like the biggest problem is he can't play the way he probably needs to play to be the most successful. But like he's got to do that because he's getting all the space. If he's not making floaters, you know, that's where things get kind of tricky. Yeah. And then but if you're Mark Dagonal, you know, you're sitting here tied for first place yeah. in the Western Conference. You know, if you make some kind of lineup change, it's kind of a, like a, an indication of panic. Right, you you risk completely losing uh, a, play, a a player mentally. Um, you already stuck by Josh Giddy through major, uh, you know, off court drama, you know, off court issues. So you know, I I I think you've got to kind of consider the team wide and individual psychological aspect of all this. And and it's not you're not playing NBA 2K where it's just okay you're plugging in you know these this guy with this skills and taking out this guy with with these skills it's a lot more than that it's a lot more than X's and O's you know I remember asking uh, Will Hardy with Jazz last year like what what's the biggest surprise to you about being an NBA head coach and he said he said X's and O's are really only about ten percent of the job mm -hmm. you know and uh, a a lot of it's a uh, you know, the handling the psychology and the, the kind of ego management and all that stuff of, of individual players and then the collective whole. Right. So I want to shift gears before we finish up here. Um, the reason we're talking about all this stuff, all the, you know, the, the whether they're a contender and how all this stuff fits is because of Shea. Mm -hmm. um, I was I was saying this earlier. I, I, um, I talked to John Calipari in October and I was mostly calling him to talk about Case and Wallace because I've talked to him about Shea before. Um, but we're not a minute into that conversation. And he says, let me tell you a story about Doc. You know, And he's just telling me, Doc did not want to trade the guy. I saw him in the playoffs that year. I think they went to dinner after a game. Uh, and, and then they circled back when all this was going down with the trade. And he just, you know, he, he knew at the time, like he said, Doc thought he had all-star talent. Um, you wrote about this last week and, and Doc said much the same thing. I mean, I think people think Doc wants a little retroactive credit for almost everything, but uh, <laughs> it was interesting I, I timing. That interview was months yeah. ago and I'm like, well, poor Doc is almost piling on. Yeah. Now, it's running today. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, but, you know, Calipari was saying this even then, this was back in October before I knew anything about the Doc Rivers thing. And I, I do think, um, you know, I've, I think we've heard since that, that he, it was in your story, right? They went to Kauai and said, could it be this guy instead? Could this guy be your yeah. other guy instead of, of uh, Paul? What, what, as you did that story, just kind of revisiting that trade and, and talking to people about it, um, what stood out to you about just looking back at it now and talking to people what, it, what their thoughts were? 
Well, look, the, the, the number one thing, Doc thought Shea could become an all-star. He didn't even think this guy was going to be an MVP candidate as he's approaching his prime. Like, let's just make this real clear. SGA has exceeded all expectations. And, like, there's nothing fluky about it. This is who he is. I'm just saying, like, you can have a crystal ball back then. But other than that, there's no way you were seeing this guy who was a good player as a rookie, was a second-team all-rookie selection and a starter on a on an eight-seed he wasn't projected to become an MVP, right? So he has blown past all expectations. And look, at the time, Kawhi was trying to put together a team that could win a championship right then and there. And Paul George finished third in the MVP voting the previous year. I mean, he was a first-team All-NBA selection. He was a, a superstar in his prime. Obviously, the Clippers have not been able to cash in. and the uh, I mean, and, and Presti basically acknowledged it at the time. They were probably going to have to pivot and blow that team up the next summer. Paul George did them a massive favor by requesting a trade when he did under the circumstances that he did, because it is the only time in the history of the league that a team was able to trade the reigning finals MVP without ever having the guy on the roster. It was, it, it, you know, it was the Paul George trade, but it was the Paul George trade for the Clippers to acquire Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And that, that, those circumstances were baked into the value that Presti was able to, to get in return, headlined by SGA. Or actually, that's not true. Headlined at the time by the yeah. historic hall of draft picks. And then SGA, Danilo Gallinari, and it's funny, you know, I went back and uh, and looked at the press conference. Yeah. And again, and this press conference was not just after the Paul George trade, but Russell Westbrook had been traded. So right. Chris Paul's on the way. It was a, it was an awfully good summer for Presty. You know, led to a little bit of, of of pain and a rebuild. But man, talk about getting ammo for a rebuild with all those picks. Um, but it wasn't. There were twenty two questions asked in the press conference. It wasn't until the twenty first that somebody <laughs> specifically asked. About Shea Gildas Alexander, he was he was brought up a little bit uh, throughout, but it wasn't until like, hey, w- you know, what exactly do you think you're getting? And the thing that that Preston really hammered on was he's just scratching the surface. He's a sponge, um, and you know that's the thing that Doc did say is like, it wasn't just about the talent; it was about the work ethic. It was about the approach. It's about how seriously this kid took his craft and how he uh, competed. But then you look at, uh, you know, in hindsight, nobody thought that they were going to cough up a lottery pick early on. Nobody thought that the, right. the Thunder were going to get a lottery pick in, uh, in 2022 from the Clippers in that deal. And it was massive misfortune. You know, Kawhi missing an entire year uh, coming off of a knee surgery. Paul George only playing 31 games and then missing uh, the second playing game because of COVID. And then even at number 12, nobody thinks you're getting a legitimate co-star at, at, at 12. Yeah. And you get uh, Jalen Williams, who wasn't even really considered a draft prospect until kind of early in his junior year at Santa Clara. Wasn't really considered a first round prospect until he had an awesome combine. Wasn't considered a lottery prospect, really, until he just killed 
team workout after team workout after team workout after team workout. And then, you know, you, you look back now a year and a half uh, later, the Thunder might have gotten the two best players in that draft. And I know Palaban Caro was an all-star. Thunder might have gotten the two best players in that draft in Chet Holmgren and, and Jalen Williams. And certainly yeah. they are two players who are just awesome fits, complementing and enhancing uh, SGA's brilliance. I mean, Chet, w- the two things they desperately needed were sp- floor spacing and rim protection. He's an elite rim protector right now. And he is a 40% three-point shooter who's also a lob threat. <laughs> I mean, right. you couldn't ask for a better fit. It's, I, I tell the story all the time about Sam Vecini, uh, who covers the draft for The Athletic. I talked to him this preseason, and uh, he said, you know, all they needed was just a seven-foot guy who can be a connector and make threes and be a lob threat and, you know, a great shot blocker. And if he can, you know, guard and pick and rolls, it's what an advantage. All they needed was just this guy who can do all that. And the thing is that it's effing impossible. Um, but yeah. then they found, you know, there he was at two. All they needed was one of the best floor, stays, floor spacing rim protectors in the history of the game. And yeah. by the way, <laughs> right. when you talk about floor spacing rim protectors in the history, we're talking about like the last five years. Right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, right. He's going to end up with, uh, he's already at 150 blocks. He's going to end up with over 200 blocks and he's already at over 100 threes. There's only been one guy in the history of the game that's had 200 blocks and 100 threes in a season. You know, you might know what it is. You might have looked it up. I haven't looked it up. You'll never get it then. Never get okay. it. Rafe LaFrance. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, never in a million years. The year that he was traded from the Nuggets to the Mavericks. But, uh, you know, Chet is the, the first of, of those guys who is a – he's doing it solely as a center. That's when LaFrance was kind of playing a lot of four, some five, et cetera. He's an absolute elite all-around defensive player, and he has the ability to attack closeouts, and and he's a great passer. He's already over 150 assists. The first guy ever to have 150 blocks, 150 assists, and 100 threes in a season, and he still has a large chunk of his rookie year to play. Um, And, you know, like you look at uh, like Brooke Lopez, you know, when you talk about floor space and rim protectors, he's the guy who really – kind of was the first in that mold. And and Chet's just a much more versatile player uh, than he is. You know, Jaron Jackson Jr. hasn't really proved that he can do it as a center, right? And and Chet, skinny as he is, he's doing it as a center for a team that's first place in the Western Conference. Yeah, it's crazy if you think about that they may end up, you know, with two, I mean, you know, 40% of their starting lineup and two-thirds of their big three out of the same draft. Yeah, uh, the same lottery, and then you know their their best player is a guy who was taken eleventh in the, in his draft. Who Usman Jing? Shea Shea was Shea was eleventh in oh, okay, his draft, which is that's nuts. I mean, eleventh and twelfth when you look at you, you watch Shea and Jada play. You know, you think about those guys being eleventh and twelfth in their respective drafts. You think they must have been the all time greatest drafts. You know, you know what's funny is. Uh... Presti didn't do the Clippers any favors because if he'd have drafted Jalen Williams at eleven when he when he used all those picks to trade up and Jing at twelve, then the, you know you still get SGA, but it's like yeah. you don't get SGA and the rising yeah. star sidekick from the Clippers in that deal. Plus, there's, there's a conspiracy theory about that, you know. 
that he did that very intentionally in order to be able to say that this kid that they felt so good about Jalen Williams that they would be able to say down the road they got him and Shea out of this. There you go. And look, who knows what else they're getting because they keep on, you know, they've got picks to come and they keep on kind of turning those picks to come into swings at potentially better picks. You know, we talked about what they did with uh, the the swaps with Dallas, which is probably going to be the Clippers pick that goes to Washington. What they did with uh, helping facilitate the Harden deal, that's using capital from that uh, that original Paul George trade. So who knows? It is funny because one of the things that they did was uh, kick back the in a, in a side deal that he kicked back that the pick the Heat owned from 2023 to 25, and that was another one of those hoping to, for a for a higher upside swing. Uh, well, the the pick that the uh, Heat ended up using was Jaime Jaquez Jr. <laughs> so, you yeah, know, you, you don't bad. want them all. Not bad. I think Portland wouldn't mind having him right now. That's my well, that's my maybe take the on Lakers. It. I mean, there's a there's yeah. a few teams that could use him. Yeah. So before I let you go, you're you're down there in Luca Land, um, and I want to talk about and you're you know you're you're podcasting weekly with uh, Timmy Goodtimes, the the czar of the straw poll. Um, I want to talk MVP for just a second. Um, Shea is second. It's uh, Tim Bontemps has said that's a good place to be in the straw <laughs> poll at this time. That's typically uh, been a good uh, stalking position uh, in the straw poll. I, I think there are people who still sort of view Jokic as an MVP type guy, and maybe those people view Luca as that, and certainly they view Giannis as that. I don't know. You know, nationally, if the perspective is that Shea Gildas Alexander is a guy who can actually win it, like he's a guy who's a candidate. And but when it comes down to to casting the vote, are people going to vote for him? And I wonder what you think it takes. What does it take for him to actually surpass Jokic and get there? First of all, I want you to refer to it by its official name, the BS poll, the bottom yeah, draw correct. poll. Um, I you know I. If the Thunder win the West, I think that's probably the best thing that can happen to SGA's uh, candidacy. Um, he's going to have the numbers, you know, whatever they are now, 31, 6, 6, leads the league in steals. Um, he's going to have the impact, the efficiency, and all those kind of things. I I'll be honest with you, though, man. I don't know that anybody can beat Joker. If Joker yeah. stays healthy, and it's like, you know, you come out of the, uh, the All-Star break, and Joker just has this run of monster triple doubles and wins. I mean, the first one he goes, I forgot the exact numbers, but it's the first time anybody had at least 15, 15, and 15 shooting 100% from the floor. You know, and then he's got this three game stretch where he's, you know, like 80 something points, 50 something rebounds, 45 assists. Only guy other than Wilt Chamberlain in 1968 who's had a run like that. Um, it's interesting though, because for the last three years, the two years Joker won it and even last year, the the nerdy case, the analytics case, was Joker by a landslide. It, it wasn't close. And, and that's not the case this year. It is close. And, you know, it's close between the four candidates, but there are, um, you know, there are analytics cases where SGA would, would come out on top. Um, you know, for, for Luca to be a real candidate, I think the Mavericks have to at least claim a guaranteed playoff spot. I don't, you can't be an MVP on a play-in team, even if you're averaging 35, 9, and 9 and doing it efficiently and you know just putting up unbelievable numbers. 
And then, you know, I think Giannis, I think the Bucks are going to have to finish strong for him to have yeah. any sort of a chance. My, what I would wager on happening was that SGA will finish, you know, second or third this year. Because let's be honest, the other thing, it is a regular season MVP award. But you kind of yep. need to see a guy perform in the playoffs before you can really convince yourself he's the most valuable player in the entire NBA. And you can say, well, you know, this guy's had a playoff game winner, but you, you know what I mean. Yep. You know what I mean? And not, not 20, 21-year-old Chagillos Alexander before he became this guy, but face of the franchise SGA. I, I think a lot of voters are going to need to see him perform in the playoffs before being able to put him number one on ballot. So uh, he's absolutely a legitimate candidate. I don't have an official vote. If I did, it would be very difficult for me not to put Nikola Jokic number one on my ballot. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And I, I think the idea, I, I think that playoff point is a really good point that not a lot of people are making that I think is not, is it fair? Maybe not, but like, this isn't about fairness. You know, like, is it fair that fatigue makes guys not win it? You know, should Jordan have won more? Should LeBron have won more? You know, um, should Kobe have won more? Whoever, Shaq, whatever the case might be. There's always those guys where you say, well, LeBron's won it so much and then now it becomes well Giannis has won it and Jokic has won it so maybe people are looking for somebody new and all that's that's not fair but it's it's a legitimate pattern that voters follow and I do think the playoff thing's a real thing that if he finishes second and then he goes off and they get to the Western Conference Finals then I think next year you could see him go in as a favorite for the MVP um, and, and certainly be a guy who if he replicates the same season and they do just about the same things is just viewed as a little bit more viable yeah, and look, if it's if it's close and you need a tiebreaker, you just watch one of these guys have the, one of the most dominant playoff runs in recent memory and lead his team to a championship. That's a pretty good tiebreaker. And again, I think there's, I think all four of those guys, like, I'm not going to knock the case of any of them, right? I, I think you can make strong cases for all four. I just think the strongest case is for Joker. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Tim, I appreciate your time so much. Um, I, people should definitely read the story you wrote about Shea and the trade and the thunder and kind of where things are going and where they came from. Anything else you want to plug? And you, you, you've been good to me. I feel like I've, I've paid you back for at least, I figure I got to pay you back for the full time spent on that drive from Tulsa <laughs> to Oklahoma City after the preseason game. So this pays back almost half of it. That's all right. Yeah, fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll take some more down the road for sure. Uh, who knew back then that we had just watched one of the worst teams uh, in the NBA? I mean, it looked like it was going to be one of the worst teams in history for a while. The Pistons won that game, I think. Listen, that Oklahoma State alum, Cade Cunningham, has got it going right now, baby. He's, he's cooking. He's cooking. They're just great. They're just a few plays away. I, I, I saw our good friend James Edwards say, just a, a few plays away from being 7-11 and 11 in the past 18. Just missed. So. It's a real, real bummer. Tim, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Everybody listen to the Hoop Collective. Check out Tim's work on ESPN.com. Uh, we'll talk to you on the road. All right. Appreciate you, brother. Adios, amigo. If you're a first-time listener to the show and you haven't subscribed, you can do that on YouTube or at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to check out all the Thunder coverage at selloutcrowd.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.